0: Okay, if you would, please turn to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 4, towards the back of your Bible. I will be reading 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word through the Apostle John to us this morning. Father, may we, as we saw last week in the previous paragraph, have ears to hear Oh, may it be true that none in this room die without the experience of the truth of those who are of God born again, born of God. Listen to us, the apostles, in the gospel we preach. May that be true. And to that end this morning, would you help me unfold this penetrating, scary, and joy-filling and thrilling text, help me re-say that which John does mean by your Spirit. To the glory of your name, amen. Now, it was kind of hard to start even reading that text without singing. I don't know if any of you, I don't even want I can't even do it, but well, you know that song, right? Beloved, let us look at... Because in this passage, these are some of the most familiar words within Christianity. And as we look at this, I just want you to know before I start, just have a little bird's eye view. There is only one main exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 7. And he repeats it in verse 11. We also ought to love one another. And the rest of all those other words are arguments, reasons underneath it for why we better obey. The first argument is in verses 7 and 8. Why should we love one another? Because God is love. The second argument is there in verses 9 and 10. You should love one another because don't you understand what God's love to us who proclaim to be Christians means and what it took and how he sacrificed his son and how his son lay down his life? That's why you are to love one another. And the third reason is in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God, the one we can't see with your eye, you see the effects. God abides in us and His love, which is in us, is manifested. It's being perfected in believers. That's it. Love because He is love. Love because He loved us. Love, because that's proof that you're actually born again. Okay, so, to the text. In verse 8, those three words, God is love, huge. And those words, God is love, they are given as the reason why knowing God truly in Jesus must result in loving others. See verse 8? Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why would you say such a thing, John? And he answers, because God is love. That's why. Now, this seems to say That non Christians don't love at all. And on one level, okay, in our culture, on one level, that would be a very silly thing to say. I mean, we all know non Christians can be warm and caring and sacrificial and giving and show empathy. That's just a fact of a reflection of being made in God's image and we see it around us in our loved ones who are not Christians and friends. We know this to be true. Right? Okay, but John says here in verse 7 to Christians, Beloved, let us love one another For, now here's his reason, for or because, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Even unbelievers, even the unregenerate, those who have not come to saving faith in Christ have not been born again is that true of them John of course not so we know he can't mean that And that means we have to be very careful at this point to understand John what do you mean by the word love here did you mean that any human being who shows warmth and care for any other human being they're born of God. Okay, no. Okay, then what are you getting at, John the son of Zebedee? And that's not a bad question. I know we like to mock President Clinton while he was in a deposition recorded. I remember him sitting at the end of the table under oath. He's really good, careful. He's a good, clear thinker. Well, it depends on what is is a question well see to always ask questions about words particularly not not verbs like is which equals but, but, but abstract nouns like love really important question no 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 Joe love means love oh really so the way you love your wife is the same thing as the way you love the Dodgers so it's exactly the same or the way you love God Is the same way you love cake or the way that you do loving things for that person who's down and out and hurting? Is the same way you love your favorite football team? Of course not. There's these nuances. What are you getting at? So the key here to understanding John's meaning of love are those three words. God is love. It's His foundation. It's the reason why anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And that means there's something about God's eternal nature that makes Him love. It's an attribute. Just like omnipotence and omniscience and eternality, that you can't take any of that away and say, oh, there we have God. No, you don't. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient knowing all. He is love. It's part of the essence of His nature before He ever created. Before there was anything except the eternal one, God. Before he created human beings as objects of his love, God was love. How could that be? How could God at his core, in his essence, be love without any creatures to love. If you would, I want you to flip over to Jesus' high priestly prayer for a moment. John 17. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus, in the midst of his prayer, says, Father, I desire that they his disciples, his apostles, that they also, and this includes all in the future, whom you have given me may be with me where I am in order to see my glory that you have given me. Now here's the kicker. Because, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world." The eternal nature of God as Trinity is the key to understanding God is love. God never has has been anything other than fully complete, happy, contented. And that would be impossible if God failed to behold and to love and to rejoice in That which is the most beautiful, worthy, lovable, delightful object in existence, which happens to be himself. And that's why God never has been anything other than eternally conscious of himself. We all do that. We, we, we all, you shower and you, you're, you're going over a conversation with somebody and you're even viewing yourself from the outside. You're very conscious of who what you, you think you are, right? You, you're finite. We're all finite. It's just, it's just a reflection of the eternal, but it, but it can't get anywhere close to matching it because He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. So when God contemplates with knowing of himself, there are no bounds. So much so that God has eternally as the subject been beholding himself as his own object in the Son, standing forth before him. And the Son has reflected back that delight and joy and worship in the object of the Father from all eternity And he did not fall short of doing it fully. He has been doing it omnipotently. Therefore, so much so that that community of love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father has eternally itself been standing forth, personified as the third person of the Holy Trinity. God is love. The Holy Spirit is the personification of God's eternal community of love. that The Father has for the Son in His perfect divine nature. And the Son for the Father. He's love. Now if you're in our text, 1 John 4, I want you to look at the connection between verses 12 and 13 for a moment. Hold everything I just said in your head if you can. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God if we believers love one another. Watch Watch the conclusion he draws. What does John draw from that? What would that mean to John? Then that means God lives or abides in us and his love, which he is, is being worked out, perfected in us. Now watch the connection with the next verse. By this we know, That we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of the third person of the Trinity. See, those two things, verse 12 and 13, are saying the same thing in different words. God's perfecting love in the believer is the result of the giving of the Holy Spirit who is the personification of His love being worked out in the believer. That's the love John's talking about. And that is why an unbeliever, a non-Christian, doesn't have that kind of love. So now, back to verse 8. John makes the connection between believers being indwelled by this God who is love and being a loving person towards others down here horizontally. He, he makes that connection by saying this. If you are not a loving person. If there's no fruit, day after day, week after week, month after month, that's how Jesus talked right, about the fruit, you know him by the, the root, vine. If you are not a loving person, not, there's no evidence for this, as a broken, undone person who will never do this person perfectly, but he says, if you are not a loving person, then you don't know this God. That's what he says. Why? Because when you become united with him through new birth, which is by the Holy Spirit, as the wind blows, Jesus says, so what happened? I got born again. You know, you know what happened. You know where it came from. And you were changed. When that happens, it's because the perfect, eternal love of the Father for the Son, personified in the Spirit, came and indwelt you and changed you. And that's why John is so confident to say so easily what he says. You have no fruit of that? It's not there at all? Then you don't know Him. To Him, it's an impossibility for born-again people not to have fruit of loving others. That's the life transforming root in the Christian life. The presence of God Himself in the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Now, I don't know if you're still in John 17, but I want to go one more verse. I want you to hear Jesus pray. Verse 26, John 17. Father, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Now listen to this. Why? Why are you praying like that, Jesus? I, I'll continue to make it known, Father, so that the love which, with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them. And I in them. There it is. You come to know God personally. It is only because God's love for the Son, personified in the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell in you through a new birth. I mean, Jesus asks that the love with which the Father has loved Him from all eternity before the foundation of the world, that that love as the Father beholds the Son and says, magnificent! Father, let that come into them. Restated, To know God is to love the Son. Not to the degree of omnipotence and omniscience, but as Paul would write, as a down payment, you have a taste of the real. But it is at its core to love the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearing of the gospel as the Father loves Him. Because that's the love that's placed in us. And therefore, for John, you cannot claim to be a Christian. See, I believe in Jesus. If you, in no way, to, there's, if there's never been any, again, you got to watch degrees here. Don't you gotta, can't just hear this. This is all mixed up with pain and confusions in life. But there's something in new birth that has happened. that says, I am enthralled with the Son man died for me and was raised because that's who God is towards the Son and if he's in you that's in you. See that there that's the essence of saving faith, loving God is the treasure that fills the emptiness that is there without God in which we were all born in spiritual death and emptiness and a hatred for the one true God until we were born of God in the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit. Okay. So now, The question is, how does that love, he comes in and yes, and I love him vertically. That love doesn't, it can't mean God's really needy. So I love him by feeding him a sandwich because he's hungry. It's, It's not a benevolent love helping him out. It's a love like you love air. You don't work for air. You don't do anything for air. Air is what you need. I love air. Give me air. Give me God. You're my life. You're everything. Vertically. How does that, According to John, therefore, translate into me, not doing that to you, but being benevolent towards you, laying down my life for you, feeding you because you are needy. How does that translate? That's what verses 9 and 10 set forth in our passage. So, let's read it. In this The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent. Okay, now, not just a love for God for God, the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, now towards creation and creatures. Benevolence. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we would be fed the eternal water, eternal bread of life, so that we might live through Him. See, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the bloody sacrifice where His wrath would be poured out that we deserved and He didn't. That's what He means by sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the Father's love for His own glory personified in the second person of the Trinity as He beholds from all eternity. That love for His own glory had desire To extend that glory outward and create in order to demonstrate how glorious He is. To create a world in where sin would be so that He would show how valuable He, God, His glory is in wrath against those as dependent finite creatures would look at him who made them and say you're not so great thank you anyway but that's not the the bottom line reason why he created it was so that in the backdrop of the holiness of his glory through wrath He would show how glorious He is in mercy to sinners who deserve that wrath but will not get it and He will show it took nothing less than the second person of the Trinity to become one of you and to lay down His life showing the gravity of what it takes in order to forgive you that the Eternal One in true humanity would on your behalf receive the justice that you deserve. That's how glorious I am, God is saying. John uses that. There's God's benevolent love. Did you just hear it again? In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that, it's amazing when you think about it, we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, here's here's John's point. Since that's true, therefore, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, a person who claims, I'm born again, I'm a born again Christian. Which, if they even understood what that meant, it means... God's eternal delight joy that He has in His Son above all things has come to dwell in me and it's changing me. That's what that really means. But, But a person says, oh, I'm born again, but lives their life. And remember, this is John's flow of this letter about walking in the darkness. Don't do that. Walk in the light. There's a pattern of life. But if their pattern of life is totally against God's purposes, like He sent His own Son to love you, We also ought to love one another. He said, how in the world does this love of God, who is God himself in you, that's what he's doubting. John is saying, if there's no fruit, there's no battle against your flesh, which wants to be absolutely narcissistic, that is our flesh. Forget about everybody else. That's constantly with us. It's the essence of sin nature. But if you're born again, there's a battle because someone's in you who says, the Son is greater than all. And it says, He so died to me, I ought to love others. And that's in there. And the Word of God is what constantly brings it out. But John says, if it's never coming out, And then he's calling into question whether you have ever tasted and seen by the Spirit of God, who is the love of God for God, whether you've ever seen and tasted that He is good to you. He's calling into question whether you have ever been born of God, have saving faith. Now, I wonder... If your mind at all is turning, if you're paying attention to the flow of John here, and you can feel a theological difficulty from what he says here and what he's been saying, really, throughout the letter. Let me read verses seven to eight again and see if you hear it. "Beloved, let us, let us love one another. Come on." because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John seems to be saying that the fruit of loving one another in the body of Christ is a necessary result of being born of God. So we See, if you could truly, through new birth, by being placed into Christ mystically by the Spirit, if you could truly know God and not at all be loving, then What John says in verse 8 is absolutely false. Because he says, if you are not loving, you don't know God. No, no, no! I know God and I'm not loving. Well, I'm going to go with John, okay? On that one. So, he seems to be saying, you know, as birds fly through nature... As dogs bark, it's their nature. As worms burrow through the earth, that's what they do. Also, oh, Christians act lovingly. I mean, he seems to be saying that. And so at this point, Detective Lieutenant Columbo, probably, what, 30% now even know who I'm talking about, would, would start to scratch his head in his disheveled way and Okay, just, I got just one more question because it's been keeping me up late at night. My wife kicks me out of the bed because I toss and turn. So could you please help me with this? If it's true that one who knows God will necessarily be a loving person, then why does John command us to love? Beloved, this is a hortatory subjunctive in the Greek. It's it's the way that you include yourself in the plural and give commandments. Love one another. Let us love one another. Why is he commanding us? When the foundation is because love is from God and whoever has been born of God and knows God, they love. And if they don't love, it proves that they're not of God. Because to be a Christian means he's in you and God will work out love in you. It's him doing it. So why does he command us? Got it? Yep. Okay. So, if you were here last week in the last past, I just want to start there. And what we saw last week for a moment Because it's the same dynamic of asking this question, how does this work? How does this Christian life thing work? And what we saw last week is that our ability to listen to the gospel, the truth, the scripture, and to listen with ears to hear, to listen, in other words, savingly is ultimately owing to the work of the Holy Spirit of God applying the cross of Jesus to us. He does it. It's all Him. He doesn't do it because we did something and then He responds. It is sovereign mercy of calling to faith. It's what we saw. But then, the Apostle John, Apostle Paul, Jesus, and I, and, and I do. And if you're a Christian and you're talking to people, I hope you do. Then we go on to say, I plead with you. Believe this gospel. Hear the command? Do this. Soften your heart. Give ears. Put yourself in front of the word. Listen, listen, listen. Open your heart. Be saved. In doing that, in saying, oh, you can't be saved unless God's sovereign mercy grabs a hold of you. If I go on to say, Believe it! Is that a contradiction to what I previously said? Now, is it inconsistent to say no one will ever believe because of our state of spiritual darkness that we're born into? Unless No one will ever believe unless first new birth happens by the Spirit. But then to go on and to plead with spiritually dead persons to believe—is there a, a contradiction there? No. Actually, biblically, those two go hand in glove. Just think about it for a moment: if the if the word of God, if the Scripture, the preacher, Paul says in Romans one, the gospel—that is, this message of Jesus Christ. And all that includes here, as it goes forth, he says that gospel going through human beings, preaching, is the power of God unto salvation. If the word of God is filled with the very power of God, then it's no contradiction whatsoever for the Lord Jesus to call forth a dead corpse of Lazarus. The eardrums did not work anymore. He is already decomposing. Th- there are no brain waves, yet he speaks. Lazarus, come forth. And there's no inconsistency because that's how God brings physical dead bodies back to life, and that's how he brings dead souls to life. I mean, from the beginning of the Bible, it's right there in creation story. Then God said, let there be light. And when God calls light to be, it cannot do anything other than come into existence. Through his word. And so the church, for centuries and maybe centuries to come, goes on preaching the gospel about God who is holy, about the fall, about sin, about your sin, about darkness, about you don't have it in you. That's how dead in sin you are. Yet he sent his son in order to purchase new life for you. This is how he did it, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Therefore, what do we do? Believe in the gospel. There's a command. And you tell them. And guess what happens? Some do. And some don't. And those who do, we look. We look into what God says about it. And those who do, we see that it is only because in the preaching of the gospel, God sovereignly acted to bring them to life. He shined. He called new life into existence. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, and then he goes back to the Genesis, creation account. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That God, talking about Christians now, has shone, shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so John, he said last week, the reason we who listen believe, confess the apostles' words is because, remember, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. God's Word, by His sovereign grace, creates what it commands. There's nothing inconsistent for Jesus to declare The truth, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then in the next breath say, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are aware of your plight, come and I'll give you rest. See, okay, now, if you get this, if you get this biblical truth, then it's going to help you see why God commands truly regenerated persons, born-again persons who have come to save in faith in Jesus. Therefore, they're going to love because God, who is love, Dwells in them by the Spirit. Why does He therefore go on to command them to love? It's the same thing. You go back. Go back to another. If people can't believe, can't hear with saving ears in and of themselves, then why do we preach to them? Because God has ordained. The preaching, the words, the commands, the telling as the means through which He changes ears and hearts. And therefore, it's the same thing with the ongoing Christian life of sanctification. Part of God sanctifying all whom He calls to Himself and, and thus producing the fruit of the Spirit, including the big one, loving others. The way he is doing that is through the means of commands. Love one another, beloved. Okay. This is where the mistake would be. Like for instance, just to say that you're, you're a helicopter pilot in in a rescue helicopter And, and you're going on a mission and the man's about ready to probably can't hold on any longer on the cliff and he needs to be rescued and you got your whole team there but God speaks out of heaven to you and says I'm going to save that man I've ordained it from the foundation of the world he's going to get saved today and not die and therefore you conclude I'm not gonna go save him then because God promised. How do you know that in that promise, He didn't mean to do it through you in the helicopter and your team? So here, here's the bottom line God has sovereignly ordained that all who are born again will love, absolutely. But He has done so because they will be commanded. love. They will be warned against not loving. And ultimately, those who are true, and the Spirit dwells in them, there's ups, there's downs, there's repentance, but ultimately, they will be filled with great joy in such commands that are their life and their sanctification. They listen to them, in other words. Isn't that what we saw in verse 6 last week? We are from God, the apostles, their word, their message. Whoever knows God listens to us. Even when we say, Beloved, let us love one another. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. See, this there that's the structure of the Christian life. It's a structure, clearly, of the whole Bible. Become what you are. Some of us have been to seminary, you throw around the grammatical terms, it's the indicative. Thus God did, thus God did, thus God did, sent His Son, did that bump. You're Christian, there it is. You're justified by faith alone, absolutely. And then there's the imperative that flows out of it. The imperatives are not to become something you're not. The imperatives are to live out what God has made you. And you will if you're true, which proves that He has made you a new creation. Isn't that how Paul said it in Philippians 2? Work out your salvation with fear. Fear of what? Unbelief. Fear of dull ears. Fear of disregarding anything you're hearing this morning. Work out your salvation with fear and, tr- and trembling. Okay, now watch, 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 what's underneath it? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good. Pleasure. He is sovereignly doing it through commands when we grasp the biblical mindset and you see this is the Christian life, it will protect you from that horrific thing that comes from your sinful nature the flesh called legalism. Because as much as you are walking powerfully with the father by the spirit in the gospel this week and fruit is overflowing in your life of good works which he has preordained that you should walk in them you once to the extent you live in this and know this there is you will know there's no ground for boasting but for the grace of God but it not only protects against that legalism it guards against a problem that is rampant in the evangelical church world today. Indeed, I even say in some of the young, restless, and reformed churches today, and that is the spirit of lawlessness. I don't need commands, I don't need warnings. We're under grace, not law. You cannot boast in God's sanctifying work when you really understand what He's doing. You can't do it. And you cannot ignore commands that God has ordained in order to produce those sanctifying works in you. All right. Just two more minutes. What I want to therefore do, I know this is heavier than usual. So, I would just want to read now my paraphrase of the whole passage again, which means to restate it in different words than John wrote it to try to bring out how I'm seeing the passage. And then I'll close this. John is telling us, those of us who are being saved in Christ, let us go on loving one another. Uh, The first reason is because the kind of love I, John, am talking about comes from God. So, whoever manifests this love is showing that he or she is born of God's Spirit and personally knows God. The opposite is also true. If one doesn't have any fruit of loving others who are also born of God, then it is evidence that they don't know God. Why do I say that? Because God is love. If they really knew Him by being indwelt with His Spirit, who is the personification of love, then that love would come out and spill over onto other persons. And the second reason we are to go on loving one another is because what it looks like to love others was demonstrated by God when He sent His Son to become human and to die so that we might live empowered by His Spirit. By the term love, I mean not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son in order that Jesus would be the bloody substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And therefore, beloved, since God so loved us by Jesus coming and laying down his life, we also ought to love one another. Because even though no one has ever seen God. Nevertheless, if we love one another with the love of God dwelling in us, then it shows that God's Spirit abides in us and that we are in the process of having love perfected in and among us. And so sovereign grace, I'll just repeat his exhortation in different words daily fight your flesh your selfishness do it by desperately turning to the father independent childlike prayer submitted to the truth of his word that's in your lap Feed upon His Word. Why? That's where the power is released. That's how the pipes flow easier by the Spirit who dwells within us in loving others. And therefore, beloved, let us love one another. And let's worship. Do I have my worship leader? Father, Even now, Lord, is melody goes forth. We do it because we want to use every means, Father. Especially this one that is so biblical in your Psalms to draw out of our affections and our hearts the truth that we have heard here this morning. Would you continue to work in us, in each individual, And only the ways you know by your spirit to cause repentance, to cause this great hope of the gospel of Jesus who has reached down and died for us even when we were lost in our sins and long before we were born. Oh, and may we ever day by day rejoice that yes, I'll make it. Only because Jesus bought it all. He bought my walking. He bought my living. He bought my repenting. He bought my loving. He bought those delicious fruits on the tree of my life. And those little fruits in every piece of it. And He bought my obedience to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Because to whom else shall we go? You are the object of all eternal line thank you father in the name of your glorious son whom you sent amen